Super Talk Mississippi media production. Did you know Toyota Brookhaven has sold more new vehicles the last two years than any other dealership in southwest Mississippi? Come see why. Exit 40 Brookhaven or online at toyotabrookhaven.com. Great service, great savings. At Toyota Brookhaven, we deliver. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music. Morning Rhino. Howdy, howdy. You know yesterday we talked about Joe Biden's nominee to serve as the administrator of the Federal Aviation Administration. He only knew the federal part. (laughs) And today we learn of a couple of more incidents aboard or on the ground concerning involving commercial aircraft. What's going on with this? Uh, This seems to me like a time where we need competency, qualifications, aptitude, in the position of running the nation's uh, airspace and airport infrastructure, two planes clip at Boston Logan, and this is in the wake of a number of other rather close calls around the country. You may have seen where uh, I believe it was a Southwest jet headed from Cuba to Florida struck a bird in flight. Oh, yeah. You saw that? I believe it caused a fire on board. Had to return to the... I think the the fire was in the engine, but yeah, that's still technically on board. Yeah. Just usually when you think of on board, you think of, like, in the cabin. Yeah. Yeah, on board the aircraft itself, right, not necessarily in the cabin, but such that you can't keep on flying. They had to return... And uh, But there was another incident involving rather severe turbulence. I think, was that also a Southwest plane? And uh, folks were reported No, that as was a uh, private executive jet the, okay. with, the, with the heavy turbulence. That wound up being a fatal incident. Okay. It was uh, a mom who's a business executive with her husband and kid and a couple other folks on a private jet. Okay. And they hit some really bad turbulence and... Something happened, and she was injured, and she passed away from her injuries. Wow. Well, I, okay, so I, I thought I read about one where the passengers were, uh, were throwing up on board as a result of Maybe the Maybe the only, with the only the turbulence. turbulence I saw was the private jet. Wow. Recently. Well, nonetheless, it, it does appear that there have been a raft 
of unusual incidents involving commercial aircraft, which is incredibly safe way to travel in this country. And that's because there has been a focus on capability, qualifications, performance, aptitude, suitability, all the above. But yet, we are about, or certainly poised to appoint someone, confirm someone to serve as the head of the FAA that don't know jack squat about flying. And again, Freely admits, well, I'm not a pilot, Senator, I don't know, but we're talking about fairly rudimentary information that one in that position should know. At least spend a little time prepping before you go in front of the entire country in the United States Senate. Might be a good idea. Because you know that the senators have got access to resources, even though they themselves aren't pilots, necessarily. They have access to resources who could compile a fairly salty set of questions to ask someone who has uh, uh, been nominated to serve in this position. But again, it's the march to mediocrity that is of deep concern. Also up on the Hill this morning, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell, arguably the most powerful man in the nation, when it, maybe in the world when it comes to your pocketbook. He's up there testifying. And Rhino, you know, we've talked about this before, how all these this army of Fed watchers are locking into every word. And they were this morning, and the markets, the futures, prior to Jerome uh, Powell's remarks, were really fairly unchanged, maybe up a little bit. And as soon as he came out and started talking, and he said, well, we're prepared to speed up interest rate hikes as necessary, boom, the old kangaroo, <laughs> it started hopping a downward and now the Dow down 255, the NASDAQ also down. Uh, again, keying on what Jerome Powell had to say, he is uh, on the Hill testifying to uh, various bank committees. And nobody knows. This is what we do know, though. And I'm going to ask, by the way, Jim Leggett, who's coming on the program in the next segment, he, of course, is a lecturer of economics at Mississippi State University. So there are 400 economics PhDs that work around the Fed. How did they get this so wrong? Because remember, over and over again, including their boss, You can't Mr. get a Powell, refund for a PhD, can you? I don't know. I bet they got student debt that's going to be canceled if Joe Biden has his way. But they all said, you remember, transitory, transitory, transitory. We could have an hour montage of all the people, the smart folks in Washington, from the Fed chair to the Secretary of the Treasury to Biden and Saki and everybody else involved. Transitory, transitory, transitory. What happened? They blew it. 
So we went from transitory to now, a year later, the same person is saying, I think I'm going to have to keep hiking rates because it can't seem to rein in that pesky inflation. Wait, now, these are supposed to be the smartest economists in the country, arguably, on the planet. Where did they blow it? Maybe common or sense Or does it go missing? to show that the private market is going to be the better arbiter than any government ever could, and oh. government could never afford to pay what the private market can, so they don't have the smartest, sharpest, Well, that's a good point. That's a good point. But they still did well enough to earn that sheepskin on their wall that says... Oh, yeah. Doctor of Philosophy in Economics, right? That's what it says. And no disrespect whatsoever. But it is fair, I believe, to call out the fact that these were some pretty smart folks that got or this wrong. at least wrong. claimed to be. Right. Might they have been influenced by their boss's no. boss? <laughs> Never. <laughs> so we're playing politics with the nation's economy. And today I'm going to try to keep my composure as I discuss Joe Biden's announcement this morning. Uh, it, well, he's teased it. He's going to discuss it further today and in the coming days. His budget proposal, which no surprise, includes significant tax increases and specifically Mr. Biden wants to increase what's called the Net Investment Income Tax, the NIIT for short, as the acronym. He's literally picking nits. <laughs> exactly. It is 3.8% levied on so-called passive income. So there's earned income, and then there's investment income, something Joe Biden has no clue what the difference is. But this 3.8% enacted as part of the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare. That is a tax that is levied on households, uh, individuals, $200,000 of adjusted gross income annually, $250,000 for those filing joint returns, 3.8% on passive income, such as capital gains on the sale of stocks or bonds or or uh, other investment assets. He wants to increase it from 3.8% to 5%, and he wants to allocate it solely, exclusively, to the Medicare Trust Fund, because guess what? It's going broke. We've known this for years. And now at the 11th hour, Mr. Biden's proposal is, we got to make the rich people pay for Medicare. You know, we got to make them pay for the health care for everybody. Those rich people. And you know what he said? Oh, they'll, they'll never miss it. They'll never miss it. That's how we form tax policy in this country? Well, if they don't miss it, it's okay. Ugh. This makes me so infuriated, as you can tell. We'll talk more about Mr. Biden's tax plans. But right now, we're taking a break. We're in the Element Well Studios. When we come back, Jim Leggett, lecturer of economics from Mississippi State. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? what? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi Live from the Element Well Studios. Joining us now, Jim Leggett, lecturer of economics from Mississippi State University. Hey, Jim, how's it going today, sir? Doing great. I'm joining you from my undisclosed location in Starkville, and it's a beautiful spring day, and we're going out to watch baseball this evening. So. Awesome. Awesome. Oh, no, not a bad day. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like uh, an excellent day. Those of us who are uh, paying attention to the Dow aren't having a great day. And that, of course, we just talked about it in the last segment, is uh, due to Fed Chairman Jerome Powell going to the Hill this morning and uh, telling lawmakers that he might have to keep raising interest rates to... Uh, get uh, control of this pesky, stubborn inflation, which thus far doesn't seem, doesn't seem like any of such increases in interest rates have done the trick. Your thoughts about that? Well, yeah, I think, it's, well, I think what we're learning or relearning is that inflation is a stubborn thing, and it's awfully hard to get rid of. And we have made progress. I think the peak was inflation rate was 9 we're around six now, which is still too high in, in my mind. And uh, me, me being a purist says it should be zero. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, and but so I think it's going to be a r- rough ride. I would imagine he's going to uh, get a tongue lashing when he uh, uh, what was he at the Senate Banking Committee. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure he's going to get a tongue lashing. Uh, in, fact, in fact, you and I are sitting here chatting about this is timely sometime about one o'clock, I'm going to introduce the Fed to, to my students. So, okay. So it's not just something made up. And, and the observation you also had that we lose track of, I can make a case that certainly whoever the chairman of the Fed is the most powerful person in the world in terms of economics. Yeah. You know, I, and uh, that's what, what, and maybe it shouldn't be that way, but it is. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the thing that's most concerning about that, Jim, is the fact that this individual is not elected by the people. Well, that's right. That was done on purpose. We could argue whether it's the right sure. thing or wrong thing. It was done, done that way. And I, I found you were talking about the 400 PhDs at the, uh, the Fed. By the way, I went and looked to see what mine said. It didn't say Dr. Blossom. Because uh, I couldn't remember. <laughs> you know, it, it, uh, but uh, what I was going to say, there was a, uh, a fellow, he may, yeah, he did win a Nobel Prize. Uh, ever heard of an uh, Austrian guy named Friedrich Hayek? Sure. Absolutely. Studied, read. Yeah, Russell Mr. Hayek's I think it was in his, his Nobel lecture, he talked about something called the pretense of knowledge, which I... I, I, I bring it man the street to, you think you know what you're doing, you're messing with something you don't understand, and you usually mess it up. You know, <laughs> think of you and I try to like fix your car, fix your computer, we think we know how to do it, and the best thing we should have done is walk away from it, because uh, then we leave, the professional has to undo, undo that. You know? And I think sometimes thinking you knowing what you're doing is worse, and messing with something is worse than not knowing. Yeah, and I think I that agree. may be the case because, and if you think about how they they do this, you're you're doing mathematical modeling and and you're trying to reduce human behavior to an equation. Yeah, and that doesn't always work. And it's even even more challenging than that because you're based on basing it on what happened in the past, which may or may not be the same thing in the future. So, I, I certainly like it economic models, but also uh, 
use them, uh, how shall I say, uh, with caution. But Jim... With and you res- can get seduced by the elegance of your models. Well, that's true. But, and maybe that's the problem, mm-hmm. is that they try to maybe overanalyze yeah. this and introduce all this complex economic, financial, mathematical models into this, but it was pretty obvious, was it not, sir, that we got the Fed expanding its balance sheet dramatically in an effort to stimulate the economy and offset the slowdown caused by COVID. We got, as I call it, helicopter money being sprayed across the landscape of the country. How could that not result in inflation? And in fact, that little story here is my wife and I turn on the news in the morning and I remember when they did it, I just said to her, is, we're going to hate this one day, and it's going to be sooner than we think. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't see how they missed it, honestly. Uh, and then here we are, and, and a, a short year later, we got the same individual, the chair of the Fed, now saying, well, not only is it not transitory as we expected, but it's a lot stickier because our our efforts to rein it in by increasing the Fed funds rate have been somewhat ineffective at this point. And I don't think Mr. Powell's going to be happy until he sees significant job losses. What we've seen thus far is is lots of uh, shedding of jobs from the technology sector. And and I'm sure you're aware of this, Jim. Normally, that's the first place we see the job losses. It's also yeah. the first place we see recovery of jobs after we have have gone through yeah. a recessionary period and so forth. We're just getting started. That's what I think, too. And I think the uh, two-point tech tends to lead. And then tech was probably due for uh, some job, some yeah. correction. Yeah. But if you look at all the benefits they had, and, and they weren't playing in the real world either. You know, when, when your biggest worry is what time your massage is at work. <laughs> <laughs> and then I used to have a boss when I worked for AT&T was going through difficulties. Uh, he, he used to tell people, you know what, in most of the rest of the world, you're happy if you get invited back next year. <laughs> That's right. Well, let's talk. talk. Of course, it didn't go over well, but his point was making money is hard. And uh, and I think we're going to see some of those corrections. You know, you if in uh, in the real estate business, uh, not so much in Starkville because there's some nifty things going on here with the uh, aluminum plant. Right. Uh, You know, housing slowed down, particularly at the high end. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was going to pivot to. Is This is starting to uh, come home to roost uh, as it pertains to consumers because we're seeing significant de- decrease in not only uh, housing sales, new home sales, but we're starting to see a retreat of housing prices, which I think is a natural reaction to the increase of, bar- increase of borrowing costs, mortgage rates up, and we're starting to see a, a significant increase in, in delinquencies of auto loans, which are also, of course, a big household expenditure. What do you think? Well, I think that's kind of the inevitable thing that happens. I guess uh, that waxes a little poetically. You know, episodes of cheap money never end well. <laughs> You know, there are probably some people who bought some houses at the peak, and they may never get that money back. Uh, what my, my wife's a real estate broker, so therefore that's how I know no more of this this stuff. But, but in our market, the the high end, and she will tell me I got the number wrong. I'm gonna say the dividing point was somewhere around three quarters of a million bucks. None of those have moved in the last year. Wow, wow. You know, so, 
No, no. And then what the other interesting phenomenon is, okay, if you wore in the high end, now you're in the medium high end. So basically everybody is ratcheting down based on affordability. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, cause, yeah. because and you raise you go get a mortgage and you're priced out. A lender, uh, when they do, when they put their math on it to determine what you can afford and service based on your household income, yeah. that's bringing the price uh, of uh, housing down that you can afford and qualify for a loan. Well, that's right. And then you could argue maybe we built two bigger houses, but that, you know, uh, I, since we were quote, talking about Hayek this morning, he had an interesting line that not everybody agrees with. Something called malinvestment. And it basically says when interest rates are too low, you, you do s- riskier things to get a return. And then when it fixes itself, it's upside down. Think about uh, if I was talking to you in 2009, think about all the houses in Vegas that were upside down. Yeah. Uh, and, so, you know, and, and then you, my imagination just kind of wanders. Would that money have been better spent funding a new pharmaceutical company than a McMansion in the Vegas? You know, yeah. I don't know. I think I would like to think it's some miracle drug is better, but you know, I, uh, I just gored my own ox. I think. <laughs> well, you and I, I believe, would remember the early 1980s Houston. Remember the just street after yeah. street of of uh, um, yeah. footage showing all these houses brand new, built with for sale signs. Couldn't move them. Yeah. Same yeah. same sort and of then, deal uh, is happening. And that that's. Well, you know what's in you know, history. I, I, one of my favorite quotes of all time is from Mark Twain. They, uh, history doesn't always repeat, but it often rhymes. <laughs> if you dig back to the roots of that, it was in cheap money in the seventies. And, right. and if you study the Fed, Arthur Burns is like uh, persona non grata, but because he he succumbed to political pressures, and then the inflation got out of hand, and it took the uh, Paul Walker to and some a lot of pain to. Uh, that's right. Make, make that in. That's right. Jim, always good talking to you, sir. Appreciate you coming on and enjoy the day in the game. All right, but right now I got to tell some people about the Fed. You got <laughs> they it. Probably thought, they probably thought the Federal Reserve was a good bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> Jim Leggett, lecturer of economics at Mississippi State, has been our guest on Middays. We're stepping aside for a break. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen for myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life. Shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job from 9 to 5 Working 9 to 5 What a way to make a living Getting by Ah yes, the great Dolly Parton Well The president once again says that it's time to reward Work, not wealth. And he's always loves to parrot and promote this fallacy that the billionaires pay a lower tax rate 
Then firefighters. I think that's the latest juxtaposition. And of course, those who think like he does in that regard, they have to also promote their rhetoric, which is just false. There is, again, the lack of understanding of earned income and investment income. We tax investment income differently than earned income to spur investment. That's why. Because there is significant risk associated with it. If you increase investment income taxes, then investors will be inclined to take less less risk. And when they take less risk, that's less capital formed for innovation, for business expansion, for improving business efficiency. It ain't that hard to figure out. Why do they hate profit so much? What, what's the aversion to profit? No profit, no country. Why do they hate it? Because they're not getting their cut. Ah, they got to get their old skim off the top. That's why they love unions. Mm. So Same they, work for less pay. But they're going to tell you they're for you. That's true. But this focus, as you know, Rhino, is always on the rate of taxation. Never the value, the amount paid by the various groups of income. So the top 1%, their share of the nation's income, top 1%, is 20%. But they pay 42% of the taxes. But that's deemed by the president. It's not fair. They pay a lower rate. Which is not true either. Because remember, we pointed out in the State of the Union address, and then he had an economic speech a couple of days after that, this wrong information that those in the top 1% pay an average of 3%. But what he didn't tell you is he's basing that on unrealized gains. Meaning if they had holdings, investment holdings that increased in value, they haven't disposed of them, they haven't sold them, therefore they've produced no gain, no cash from the transaction. He wants to tax that. That's what's known as a wealth tax. And where that has been attempted, such as in France, in Europe, it has been a dismal failure. It's insane. It's confiscation of assets. The bottom 50%, bottom 50%, so you just heard 1%, they account for 20% of the nation's total income, but they shoulder 42% of the nation's tax burden, income tax burden. The bottom 50%, their share of total income is about 11%, yet they pay less than 2% of the taxes. 
They have half the income. They pay 2% of the taxes compared to 42% of the taxes. But that's fair. But he never discusses that. It's always the rate, the rate, the rate. Always the rate. So his plan to address the insolvency of Medicare, and at least he is acknowledging its dire financial condition, because we've talked about it on the program so many times. There's such a focus on Social Security, but lesser so on Medicare. Well, it's scheduled, according to the folks who oversee the Medicare Trust Fund, for some time they've said, hey, by 2028, we can't pay the bills. We can't pay 100% of the cost of Part A, which is health uh, hospital expenses. Can't pay it. So you know we have a health care industry that is under enormous financial pressure, many, including in the state of Mississippi, losing money. So you take, you take Medicare, and by 2028, it can't pay hospitals, which is already a lower rate than it reimburses, than private coverage reimburses. Imagine now that's going to decrease because Medicare doesn't have enough money to pay 100% of its obligation. Joe Biden's solution, tax the rich people. Just let the rich people pay for everybody else's Medicare. It's the most egregious form of redistribution. And they're okay with that. And he even said, and he laughed about it. That's what made me mad, Rhino. I couldn't find the, the video to share. But he, you know that little <laughs> laugh? <laughs> They'll never miss it. They'll never miss it! That's how we make tax policy? They'll In never fairness, miss it. Biden is not that good with money. In the four years he was out of politics during the Trump administration, President Biden himself, publicly known, made just shy of $18 million. His current net worth, $8 million. What'd he do? He would have had to have blown over two grand per day. Oh, my gosh. Unbelievable. But we're supposed to listen to that guy about how to spend money? Yeah. And so he wrote, you know he didn't write it, today in the New York Times. Joe Biden, colon, the title, My Plan to Extend Medicare for Another Generation. By the way, this move, only 25 years. Only buys you 25 years. Then we're back at it again. And, of course, he gives you the background on Americans work their whole life and they're paying to Medicare. I agree. But it's a bad model. It's a bad program. He says the trust fund will be solvent to at least 2050 without cutting a penny in benefits. And his plan, of course, as we just indicated, is to increase the net income investment income tax from 3.8% to 5%. Now, again, this will only affect those uh, who have household incomes above 250000 if they file joint returns. But it doesn't matter. And then he goes on to 
to bellyache about income inequality. It's your policies that make it unequal. It's your policies that have created a barrier so that all Americans can rise to their fullest economic potential. It's your policies. Why don't they get that? Because they're dumb. Hmm. He says, when Medicare was passed, the wealthiest 1% of Americans didn't have more than five times the wealth of the bottom 50% combined. And it all only makes sense that some adjustments be made to reflect that reality today. Meaning, i got to take some of what you lawfully earned, earned by serving your fellow man, and to this point, Goofy Robert, uh, Robert Reich, as uh, Rush used to say, Reich. He says, reminder, Bill, he tweeted this, billionaires are not self-made. They're made via a combination of inherited wealth, government subsidies, tax loopholes, labor exploitation, you knew that was obligatory, and policy failures. Can we stop perpetuating a myth that blames the wealth gap on the choices of everyday Americans. In other words, if you ain't rich, it's not your fault, it's the rich people's fault. And he's I wrong. the Kardashians. <laughs> it's the Kardashians. So there are 2,600 billionaires, Mr. Reich. You're wrong, 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 as usual. There are 2,600 billionaires in the world, about a third of them reside in the in this country 60% 60% are self-made 40% inherited we should celebrate that not blast it not shide it not castigate it that is a victory of free markets we're coming right back in the element well studios stay with us Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. the lies, Rhino. This Robert Reich guy is a miserable human, is he not? Oh, yeah. It's what it's all about. He cannot function, nor could he succeed in a free market. He couldn't. He can only exist, He's honestly. He's a parasite. Yeah, exactly. He's only good as a leech. That's exactly right. And and for him... Which that describes most Democrats... It sure seems. Sure seems. So, I ask again, why this deep contempt for billionaires? We should celebrate billionaires. I look at billionaires, I don't feel jealous or envious or resentful. You know what I think? How can I do that? Now, 
I understand it's a long shot, but you know what? I just want the opportunity. Just the opportunity. And you know what else? I want my kids and their kids and you and everybody else to have that opportunity. I get it. Very few do. You could make the same argument, Very could you few not? Very play in the Super Bowl. I was going to say the same thing. I mean, how, how many have small children right now that are thinking, you know, my child has a chance to ascend the ranks playing baseball. It's baseball season. It's, it's a dream of every kid. Play professional base, baseball. Be in the big leagues. Hit the winning walk-off hit, right? Well, of course. That's fantastic. You have that opportunity. But guess what? Very few make it. Very few. Well, at least for now, Rhino, because at least merit does seem to account for something in sports performance. Or is it just a matter of time before we replace that with the wokeness of equity? Maybe so. Well, in the vein of baseball, put yourself in the shoes of a young child in the backyard with a bat and ball and you're playing pretend. What's the scenario that you're going to play pretend? Game 7, World Series, bottom of the ninth, down by three, bases loaded, full count. Every kid dreams of doing that if they have a bat and ball in hand. You know how many times that's happened? How many? Zero. <laughs> it's only happened in regular season games 15 times. But isn't it fun? Isn't that part of the experience of growing up? And you know, I've been there as a parent when your child does do well on the field of play. Sure, you start thinking about it. Hey, maybe they got it. Maybe they can keep going. Of course. But the system... Ultimately, rightfully, it, it sort of filters out those that just can't hang. And it allows those that can to continue to ascend. But you know what? They all had the opportunity. That's all we want. But I just get the feeling that these Democrats, they want to eliminate the opportunity. Oh, if we did that, some people may actually capitalize, seize on that opportunity and... and and achieve wealth. We can't let that happen. While in the meantime, they are producing enormous benefit for society. That's how they got there. That's what's so mind-bending about leftists, Democrats, liberals, and idiots, is they've managed to convince themselves that two major parts of life don't exist. Competition and the reality of statistics. They don't like competition, so they just act like it doesn't exist. They do their best to wipe it off the face of the planet. It's, it's unequitable. Do away with it. You can't have competition. That's racist. True. They don't like the reality of statistics because it doesn't play into their utopian mindset. All true. It's all absolutely true. The, uh, just When I heard about this early this morning that he was going to be, he the president, announcing his plans to... Um, shore up Medicare is the way he would describe it, by increasing taxes. When I, when I Googled that, you know how you'll get a series of hits in horizontal fashion from various news articles that you can scroll through and sort of pick one out. 
it was every major news source, of course, in the country. But some of the headlines, Biden's plan to avert Medicare funding crisis includes tax hikes on high earners. Biden unveils plan averting Medicare funding crisis, challenging GOP, that from the Washington Post. Biden's plan, uh, Biden plans tax on high earners in bid to save Medicare from Reuters. Biden proposes increased tax rate on high earners to keep Medicare solvent from the Hill. And then from uh, Time Magazine, I can't find that one, they had a crazy one too. Biden outlines Medicare proposals aimed at shoring up funding, that from NBC, ABC. Gavin Newsom, by the way, announces California is done with Walgreens to an abortion pill, based on that. Coming right back, we've got uh, Christopher Green. Stay with us. And now, and now, another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studios. It's hour two of Midday Super Talk Mississippi. Joining us now, Christopher Green, law professor, University of Mississippi Law School. Professor, good to see you, sir. Hey, Professor, I don't I don't think we got you. You might be on mute. All right, we'll let you get hooked up there. Still can't hear you. You gonna try to get him, Rhino? Yeah. All right. We'll try to get the professor. We uh, we scheduled uh, Professor Green to come on the program and talk about Mississippi's ballot initiative legislation and some recent changes that would, of course, uh, prohibit a future ballot initiative vote on abortion. That's something that the Speaker of the House wanted to include in the measure that would reinstate Mississippi's ballot initiative program. Uh, I I have concerns about the high signature threshold. I honestly believe it would have the uh, exact opposite effect. Okay, we got uh, the professor. Hey, we got you there, Professor Green. Good to uh, good to have you on the phone here. I think uh, some someone went went goofy with my microphone. Well, that's no problem. Uh, glad to have you. We were just kind of introducing the topic of this uh, ballot initiative uh, measure that is being deliberated by the uh, state legislature, of course, to kind of level set for our audience. We, we presently have one prescribed by the state's constitution, but it was in effect nullified by the state Supreme Court because of some, some mathematical imperfections in the uh, in the provision and so we we stand now without such a way for citizens to get something on the ballot that they feel strongly about that they could vote and uh, and in this case uh, the measure that's being d- discussed and considered would actually either I guess amend or establish statute law and not amend the Constitution as uh, in accordance with the old process. What do you think about right. what do you think about 
uh, provisions in the measure that would limit it to only certain certain subject matter and perhaps prohibit other topics such as abortion from being considered and and being available to citizens to to take to the to the ballot well so so a power to adopt a statute by initiative is just inherently very different from a power to amend the Constitution. Okay. So uh, we actually have a, a, a crazy long, complicated history of this. In 1916, we attempted to uh, adopt both of these in the state constitution, and the Mississippi Supreme Court initially said that was okay, but then in 1922, they said that these were too different from each other, so it is actually adopting two proposals at once, and you can't do that. So then in 92, uh, we adopt just the power to uh, to amend, but of course it uh, has the self-destruct mechanism uh, inadvertently put in, perhaps, about the number of congressional districts. The thing they're talking about now, well, one, one thing is big difference, they would have a lot more signatures. So a couple hundred thousand, That's it's really hard uh, to, to get that many people. It's not impossible, but essentially what you get when you have the, adopt, the power to adopt a statute, first you get the opportunity to put something on the agenda of the legislature. And then also it allows uh, certain coalitions to, uh, to preserve it. So if you had like a majority of one house, of the, you, know, of, you know, a majority of the Senate, plus a majority of the electorate, well, then you can pass an initiative and you can prevent any legislation to repeal it. Um, uh, you know, similarly, if you had the governor on your side and you had at least a third of, of one house to prevent the veto from being overridden, you could do that. So essentially, I think this would allow a workaround in certain circumstances uh, where you've got gridlock. So then you have a question, okay, does it make any sense to limit it to certain subjects? If you thought that this kind of limited workaround for gridlock was really only something you wanted to allow for certain subjects, you could do that. So the Supreme Court has said, uh, in a case, uh, Schutte versus uh, by any means necessary, uh, they said you're allowed to constitutionalize certain subjects, even if you're not constitutionally obligated to, uh, uh, to have that kind of uh, uh, system. You can, uh, you can constitutionalize, in that case, uh, affirmative action questions. Uh, they say you, you can't uh, 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 allow a legislature to do it. Uh, there had been some questions before the Schutte case of whether you could do that, but I think it would be it would be constitutional certainly if they put a limited uh, initiative. Uh, and you know, the more the signatures are, the uh, uh, more limited it is uh, in any event. But also because it's only uh, a power to adopt a statute, it's something that you know if if you if you've got both houses of the legislature and the governor against you, it's not going to make any difference. For certain things, you could imagine uh, you know getting. 50% plus one of the electorate, and it has to be very highly energized to get this couple hundred thousand signatures, uh, but you could imagine it making a difference. Yeah. So to what extent does just the concept, uh, Professor, of a citizen-initiated ballot measure that would enact or amend statute, to what extent does that conflict with the original framework of the U.S. Constitution, which, of course, lays out a republic form of government. Is there a conflict there? Do we look more like well, a democratic I mean, so, form of government, I guess? 
Yeah, historically, you find these kind of arguments getting made. So initiatives, they get much more popular uh, in the 19-teens. So we adopt, adopted in 1916. Uh, there's an argument that uh, gets made at the U.S. Supreme Court, actually. Uh, so we have Article 4, Section 4, says we've got to have a Republican form of government. Historically, there's a lot of people that say that means uh, inherently representative. Uh, government. Okay. So you're not just going to have the, legisla- uh, the legislative power given to the people at large. It's got to be uh, uh, people who you know, get together and think, uh, have a conversation. So uh, Edmund Burke has this line saying, you know, I owe my constituents not merely uh, the duty to follow their will, uh, but uh, the duty to exercise my own judgment. I'm supposed to do what's good for my constituents, not just what they tell me to do. Uh, so historically, there is this argument against the initiative in general. Um, of course, we adopt all of our constitutional amendments anyway by a vote of the people. Right. Uh, so we've had, I mean, ever since uh, we started having a state constitution, we have at least some element of um, ability to make law by the people itself, meaning, you know, 50.1% uh, of the people. And, uh, you know, there's always a choice, I think, between... People who know what they're doing and uh, kind of the concern that you have laws made by people who don't know anything and the concern that people laws are getting made by people who are just feathering their own nests. Uh, So you kind of have, um, I mean, it's not quite as as coarse-grained as ignorance versus corruption, but, you know, which of these are you going to be be more concerned about? Uh, Which which risk is greater? Uh, And at different times, I think it's going to be different. In different subject matters, it might be different. So if you think... uh, uh, ignorance is a bigger danger for certain subject matters. Uh, you might say, yeah, let's leave that with the legislature. Uh, if you think corruption is a bigger deal, you want to, you know, adopt a rule that, oh, I don't know, you know, you, you can imagine, you know, just, uh, uh, just naked suppression of competition. You get some of these, these statutes uh, getting considered by the, the legislature all the time. Uh, you, can, you can imagine that being the kind of thing. It's really important to allow the people to rise up and say, no, dang it, we're not going to yeah. allow you to just suppress uh, consumer choices. Uh, we want uh, lower prices and higher production. Uh, uh, and uh, the, the idea that lower, uh, lower production and higher prices is the way to prosperity, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, a disturbingly tempting idea uh, that uh, many people have succumbed to over the years. Sure. All right, uh, so here's another question, this high signature threshold. Is there anything in our Constitution, the state Constitution, uh, that prescribes that, or is, does it prohibit uh, this, the number of signatures, or, or um, yeah, I guess anything related to that in the Constitution, or does the legislature have full discretion over that? I think this is something that, you know, whatever the proposal is that they put in, uh, they can set the number. Uh, okay. They could say, hey, you know, uh, if 90% of the electorate come and demand some particular kind of statute, uh, you know, okay, then you can, you can do it, but anything less than that, uh, we'll just handle all the legislating uh, uh, for ourselves. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're free not to have it at all. We don't have it. We haven't had it since <laughs> 1922. Um, and, uh, you know, if there's no constitutional requirement to have it, once in a while you get a, a, a situation where you're allowed to have nothing and you're allowed to have even-handed uh, provision of something, but you can't uh, pick and choose. The number of signatures uh, that you need for an initiative is, uh, doesn't seem like the kind of thing that, that would be in that, in that basket. I see. Professor, always good talking to you, sir. Appreciate your insight. Have a great day. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Good talking to you. Take care. You got it. Middays, taking a break. Coming right back.
talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Now, now on to the real part. Dynamite! On Super Talk Mississippi. to midday super talk mississippi go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let element wealth help you find your growth a power pardon me your balance between income growth and guarantees the dow now down to 277 it has come off its lows of the session it was down over 400 just a couple of minutes ago but Investors, needless to say, ain't happy because Fed Chairman Jerome Powell comes out this morning at, uh, on Capitol Hill and says, we're going to have to keep raising those rates because we can't get this inflation thing to cooperate. Americans now say that's their number one concern, the rising cost of living, gas buddy, the organization which tracks gas prices across the nation and projects the price of gas out a few months into the future says look for four bucks a gallon on average. On average, this June time frame as the oil producers switch over to their summer blends and folks travel more typically during the summer. The wild card is China. It, we just don't know to what extent, because you can't get accurate information out of the communist regime that run the place over there. No, you listen to what they have to say about how things are going. It's rosy. Yeah, they lie. Uh, newsflash, they lie. So we don't know. If that place gets cranked up again and they start really consuming a whole bunch of oil, gas, Watch the price go even higher. The fundamental problem, of course, is that we cannot do anything that would promote supply. That's out of the question. So think about the the hypocrisy. We can't promote supply. So in the meantime, the price stays elevated, and the people who make it, whom this administration has deep contempt for, they make more money. And then they blast them because they make more money. And it's because of their stupid policies. No intention, no talk whatsoever about boosting supply of anything, for that matter. Nothing. John Kerry, you know who he is, the climate czar. <laughs> Old flip-flop himself. <laughs> he now says we need two to three trillion a year focused on climate change initiatives to save the planet. A year, two to three trillion a year. That would be a 33% increase in the federal budget, which runs about a 30% deficit. 
it's you budgeting insanity. for a takeover of China and India? Uh, that's the only way you're really going to get greenhouse gases under control is if you get China and India to quit polluting as much as they are. They won't admit that, though, will they? No. They're, they're, they're off limits. You, you can't criticize or condemn China or India. Mainly China. But you're right. No interest in that whatsoever. And studies show that greenhouse gas emissions in this country have plummeted dramatically. You know why? Private sector innovation. That's why. That's why. I read a report this morning, Rhino, from MIT that uh, was discussing geothermal energy. Now, this is something that you well know that has been worked on in development for a a long time. Historically, it's only been viable in places where you have hot springs or right. other seismic activity that isn't like a fault line. Right. But there are some scientists, and not, nothing that hasn't, again, been in development and on the table for quite some time, that are making tremendous progress on geothermal. And long story short, uh, what they're doing in northern Nevada, and it involves, as you know, pumping water underground uh, under certain sand formations, into certain sand formations, to circulate it through rock is what it does, and that generates energy. Well, heck, they're saying, based on their preliminary test here, preliminary test of something they've been working on for a very long time, but they're, they're getting closer in... Uh, yeah, because you got to balance the amount of energy you can withdraw from the heat underneath the ground versus how much you're spending to pump the water down there to gain the energy. So it's it's a balancing act, and that's why it's been limited to places with so much seismic activity and and so much heat right under the surface because it makes that balance easier. In any emerging, evolving technology like this, it's always a matter of, of crossing the, the economic line. Oh, yeah. It's that, well, yeah, we could do that, but it, it's just cost prohibitive. It doesn't work. I mean, but, how many times have you heard people claiming about, we're running out of water, we're not going to have fresh water? I mean, that's been off and on a, a siren call for climatologists and climate activists for a couple decades now. Yeah, at least. But the majority of the planet's covered with water. Right. Why isn't there a work on desalination? Oh, wait, because it hasn't been economically feasible yet. Yeah, there's plenty of work on it. It just hasn't crossed that line yet. But new technology and human innovation, I think, will ultimately solve that problem, as is what's happening here with geothermal. So, as you know, it's limitless. So the scientists estimate if the U.S. could capture, listen to this, just... 2% of the thermal energy available two to some two to six miles beneath our surface, it could produce more than 2,000 times, 2,000 the nation's energy consumption, total energy consumption, 2,000 times more, just 2% of what's available. Again, these are the kinds of things that people just don't think about and I've heard well, it's hard of, to wrap your head around that scale it, it is I agree but but we've heard and, and folks are right 
in that, hey, we don't have enough power, we don't, we don't have enough grid capacity to charge all these electric vehicles. Absolutely true, based on current infrastructure. But what never gets injected into that discussion is, what about these smart people that are figuring out other ways to produce electricity? This is coming. I think I've talked about one of my clients, which was Switch Networks in Nevada. That was their first facility, huge uh, data center facility, 7 million square feet of data centers up in the, the mountains uh, not far from Lake Tahoe. And they were primarily powered by geothermal. They invested in it themselves. They produced their own power. Do not consume a kilowatt from the public grid. Geothermal. They're able to do it in an economically feasible way. It's fascinating. So, and the amount of power they generate is mind-boggling just for that one installation, that one facility. So this is all doable, and it's coming. This is, this is great. This is good news. This is human innovation. But don't tell Biden, because you know what might happen if this becomes commercially available? Somebody might get rich. You think they might get rich if they figure this out? Oh, yeah. Sure. But but it's all about risk-reward. Right now, there's not a whole lot of money coming in, so it's a whole lot of money going into the ground to develop this. And guess where that's coming from? Wall Street, capital markets, billionaires, the people that we want to just shake down more. That's the only hope for solving these problems. The problems that they've told us are existential. You think poor people are going to fund this? No disrespect to poor people, but guess what? If we get this, what happens to poor people? Maybe their power bills go down. Meanwhile, development of solar panels and wind power have stagnated because the government said, well, yeah, you don't have to make it any better. We'll pay you for what you got right now. It's true. Man, we're so myopic, short-sighted, and I know you find it hard to believe, politically motivated. It doesn't sell for, for Kerry. He wants trillions, four trillion a year for climate change. Well, heck, we'll all be broke. Oh, we got a clean planet, I guess. We just can't survive on it because we're broke. We're penniless. I bet it doesn't apply to him, though. <laughs> we are going to take a break here in the Element Well Studios. A lot more to talk about today, including some proposals to change the Mississippi Adequate Education Program funding. That's how we fund public schools in Mississippi. We're coming right back with more in the Element Wealth Studios. Mississippi. Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi.
from Well Studios. The Who with Baba O'Reilly. Iconic tune from the British rock group. I can see what's his name, Keith Moon, smashing them guitars. <laughs> that was what he's known for. And Roger Daltrey spinning that mic like a lasso and whip, right? Hmm. Well, let's see on the C Spire text line. Passive income is when the other team hits it in the water on 18 at Annandale. Just watch the disaster unfold and reap the rewards of getting to rag them later in the 19th hole, <laughs> says my buddy Gary in the bunker. Yeah, we, uh, we had a good game this past weekend, uh, Gary. I lost two bucks on Saturday and won two bucks on Sunday. I could have it backwards, but it was a $2 deal. It uh, wasn't a lot of action, though. People need to understand that capital gains and income taxes are different things, Paul and Meridian. Exactly, Paul. It's the distinction between earned income and investment income. We tax it differently. The left hates that, as you know. They hate it because they see it as is benefiting higher-income individuals and joint tax filers because they generally produce most of their income from passive investment sources. But they didn't wake up with all that in the bank. So, full disclosure, I admit, most of my income comes from passive sources. But you know what? I worked 40 years. 33 of those as an entrepreneur and was fortunate to be involved in building a, a valuable asset that was liquidated, and now that's my source of income. But for all those years, I paid through the nose income taxes. And something that doesn't get discussed a lot, employers out there will know where I'm coming from, your employees, of course, are paying their federal FICA taxes, Social Security and Medicare taxes, on their wages, but the employers are matching it. Employers are paying for half of everyone's Social Security income and Medicare benefits. That's the way our system works. That never gets considered, never gets discussed. If you're self-employed, you pay both sides. Both sides. And you don't get the benefit of pre-tax treatment of your health insurance premiums. That's a disparity that I've called for correcting since before Obamacare. This is crazy. You're self-employed. You buy insurance. You don't get pre-tax treatment. You get it through your employer. You do. What you looking at? Got a couple corrections on the ceasefire text line. Moon played the drums. Oh, my bad. But he was famous for destroying those drums. Okay. Well, who played the guitar? Pete Townsend. Townsend. Gosh, you're right. My bad. You have to correct me on that but all the time. Isn't Moon like half deaf now because he put explosives in the drums on live television? I didn't know that. I think that's the story. Oh, wow. Put well, explosives in his bass drum. <laughs> well, that's in the days when pyrotechnics were, were popular in concerts. I don't even think they were pyro. I think they were just actual explosives. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know that. 
Okay, thanks for the correction. But I am right. I've seen numerous um, video. I didn't I mean, get to yeah, see when them they live, get to smashing but... stuff, it all devolves into whatever you can get your hands on. Just break it. <laughs> oh, gosh. And, of course, Roger Daltrey, the iconic lead singer. It is true he used to spin that mic around. Oh, yeah. He was pretty good at it, too. <laughs> he could spin it around. That was and half he... of a front man's style was what he did with the microphone. No doubt about it. I totally agree. He was awesome. I mean, look at all the, the rags and paraphernalia attached to the microphone for somebody like Steven Tyler. <laughs> That's true. Aerosmith. Or the, or the way that Freddie Mercury would, would almost use the microphone as a baton to conduct the crowd. That's right. Sure did. Those were the days when you had to have a physical microphone. You weren't mic'd up wirelessly. And of course, and you had them on stands back in those days, right? And they they were pretty good with a stand, unless you were doing a game show where you had the really long neck microphone <laughs> so that you could hold your hand down by your waist and still talk into it. The great Gene Rayburn popularized that model on Match Game. My generation grew up seeing Bob Barker use it. That's true. Right. He did too, with a little bitty ball at the oh, top, yeah. right? That's very true, like a wand. <laughs> Could hold it two fingers. <laughs> I often wondered, is that a prop or is that really a mic? Because <laughs> it had a wire on it. Oh, yeah. Where did it go, though? <laughs> How many millionaires acquired that status while serving, in quotes, in the U.S. government or shortly after leaving that service, asks Arlen in Wayne County. It's a great question. Let's see. Why aren't they celebrating that the richest man in the world is an African-American? It's Elon Musk. He was born in South Africa. They will be pretending to play that World Series game that Rhino and I were talking about. As, as I think most of us have dreamed of that scenario and hitting the walk-off to I just win always the World remember Series. being flabbergasted as a kid when... Because, I mean, you think about that. You, you think of that iconic moment that every kid who's ever picked up a bat and ball dreams of. You would think it's based on something that happened. Some Hall of Famer did it, and that was their ticket to... No, it's never happened in the World Series. There's I never didn't know been that. a walk-off Grand Slam to win Game 7 of the World Series. I didn't know that until you pointed it out. Says, uh, goes on to say, Mike and Gulfport, they will be pretending to play that World Series game and need a relief pitcher to face Charlie Brown. And here comes Lucy. <laughs> oh, Biden's boss's goal is to keep the people poor and the government rich, a form of control like all other objectives of the Democrat Party. Communist control at the heart of the plan, says Carol in Starkville. Can't go to the grocery store anymore for less than a hundred bucks for two people on the six six two. It is ridiculous. I was talking to one of my friends uh, around the golf course this weekend about uh, missing the days when one could grab a lunch for ten dollars or less. It's pretty hard to find that these days, isn't it? Oh yeah. It's, it's almost impossible to get in the single digit handle before the the dot before the period. I mean, you go even lower than that. Look at Mickey D's. There used to be an entire section of their menu that was the dollar menu. You could order all of those items on that list for a dollar. Right. There may be one, two, three things on there you can get for a dollar now. 
So, well, it's like the dollar, general. They came out, it's a buck and a quarter now, right? Jeez. Uh, it doesn't seem like that there's any interest in addressing that problem. Have you all discussed the legislation in Florida where bloggers who write about DeSantis would have to register before doing so? If that's the actual bill, then it's dumb and shouldn't be made into law, but it's hard to take any of the reporting on anything coming out of Florida seriously after the Don't Say Gay bill, which didn't have that in the bill at all. Yeah, it's there, there's always tremendous embellishment of fact for political gain once again. Rest in peace, Gary Rosington. Yeah, we, we talked about that yesterday, the lead guitarist for Leonard Skinner. He died a couple of days ago at the age of 71. Sad to see him go. You said smash the guitars, it smashed the cymbals. <laughs> well, smashing the cymbals could also be construed as making music. Smashing the guitars, I don't know about that. I think that's just destroying an instrument there on the stage. I still maintain the coolest destruction of a guitar ever was Jimi Hendrix setting his on fire. I didn't know that. I believe that was at Woodstock, where he got done and laid it down, and poured lighter fluid on it, and set it on fire, and did a little dance. Yeah, after playing Purple Haze, right? All along the Watchtower. Hendrix tunes. David and West Point... And let's see, someone else. Ray from Forrest let us know that Keith Moon is actually deceased. Didn't know that. I think there was a big fight between Keith Moon and Pete Townsend after the explosion, says Dan. Maybe it was Townsend that went to half death because of it. Wow. So let me get this straight. Dreamers are coming here for the American dream. Is that dream to come here and make a fortune to pay taxes? Asks Darren and Jackson. It sure seems like. Wow. Wasn't Moon the one who took a car up at Hotels.com freight elevator and deposited it in the rooftop pool, asked Mose. I don't know, Mose. That's fascinating. Five for five dollars at Wendy's, says Ricky in Aberdeen. Coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Stay with us. You know what that means. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live on Super Talk Mississippi. Bumping us into this segment, it is the final segment of Hour 2 of Middays. Super Talk Mississippi in the Element Well Studios. The C Spire text line, of course, 601-879-4395. I've been eating Vienna sausage and crackers for lunches lately just to save money, says Steve in Brookhaven. Keith Moon died of a drug overdose. One of the best drummers ever. Pete Townsend is still alive. That's from Jason in Hattiesburg. Love your show. First time texted. Thanks for for uh, listening, uh, Jason, and also thanks for sending us a text. Keep doing so. 
When Biden got elected, I built a greenhouse and started raising chickens. I've cut my grocery store visits down to once every two to three months. Wow. That's incredible. On the C Spire text line there. Apparently there's some controversy over when and where Jimi Hendrix set his guitar on fire. I did a little research during the break, and apparently the first time he did it was at the Astoria Theater in London. And the uh, stagehand that sprayed the lighter fluid on it put a bit too much, and the flames leapt up to about four feet and actually put minor burns on Jimi Hendrix's hands. Wow. But apparently he burned three different guitars throughout his career. I couldn't find out whether or not he did it at Woodstock, and I wasn't around to be there, so hmm. I'll have to take the ceasefire text line's word for it that he didn't do it at Woodstock. Hmm. Okay. Very cool. So, on the ceasefire text line, Chris from Oxford says, Bob Barker got his game show start on the Gene Rayburn show match game. He was one of the celebrity guests that helped the contestants. You know... Chris, pretty sure that Bob's uh, career got started prior to that. He was the host, as I recall, of the show Truth or Consequences. Yeah, he started that back in the 60s, mid-50s, 50s, I want to say. 60s, yeah. I remember it when I was a, a kid. Uh, Truth or Consequences was the longest-running daytime game show in history until The Price is Right surpassed it. He had a pretty good run. Which that would make sense. Shows. That would make him the celebrity that would be helping on Gene Rayburn's sure, show. Sure, of course. Now, I, I happen to think Match Game was a very entertaining show. It still comes on very early in the morning on the Game Show Network, GSN. And I'll tune in every now and then just kind of veg out. They were pretty zany, as they say. Richard Dawson. Now, I would say, I would argue that he got his game show career started as a guest, or uh, a panelist, I guess, a uh, regular panelist on, celebrity panelist on uh, the match game. That launched his career as the host of uh, Family Feud, the original host of Family Feud. And before that, of course, he's known for his role on Hogan's Heroes. Corporal Peter Newkirk. That's right, Newkirk. What a great show that was, by the way. I know nothing. <laughs> I see nothing. <laughs> oh, the great Sergeant Schultz. That <laughs> was so good. Car Colonel Clink, LeBeau from France. <laughs> and who was the radio guy that was always connecting stuff? <laughs> oh, what was his name? He could always make stuff work. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Thomas from Greenwood says, Who claims socialism wasn't expensive? It's not cheap, Gerard. Yeah, I know. Speaking of guitars, how much will Willie Nelson's guitar be worth when he passes? That's a good question. Is McDaniel enough of a threat that Delbert has to delve into the MAEP formula? I don't think that has anything to do with it, Thomas, honestly. I think there's been some some discussion, some consideration of amending that formula for quite some time. One of the problems with the formula is that there's an inflation factor that's applied to state funding that assumes that some 40% of base student cost is subject to inflation. And after further analysis, it appears that only about 20% is. So 
the increase in the MAEP funding amount based on an assumed increase of inflation affecting cost is essentially double from the inflation rate, uh, the, the amount, I guess, of spending that is impacted by inflation. So that's one of the proposals is to reduce that and then also to increase the the threshold for the participation by local school districts. That's It's a formula that's combined funding from the state and the local school districts. The Typically the more affluent districts, they're able to hit their threshold with money left over because their property values are higher and they therefore then typically supplement their required funding with additional funding, which typically produces um, better schools. It's what certainly the less affluent districts would argue that. But we are coming right back. We're at the top of the hour. We've got Super Talk News, Fox News next. We've got a whole other hour of talk left. Please stay with us. We're in the Element Well Studios. That keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like listening. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk, Mississippi. Back with you in the Element Well Studios, hour three of middays, which is going to be at the Mississippi Trademark tomorrow for the Mississippi Construction Education Foundation Skills Competition. Looking forward to that down at the Mississippi Trademark. That's been kind of my home away from home doing remotes here lately. On the ceasefire text line, hey Gerard, I know you're a drummer as well. Keith Moon didn't use hi-hats much at all until his later years in drumming. Most of his timing was using a lot of crash and ride. I didn't know that, says Stephen Madison. Wasn't familiar with that. That didn't really track him too much when I was uh, an aspiring drummer. I, I really kind of uh, modeled myself after uh, Don Brewer with uh, Grand Funk Railroad and Danny Serafin, the drummer of Chicago. Also, a guy named Aldridge, Tommy Aldridge, I believe, was with Black Oak, Arkansas, was one of the first on the scene in rock bands to have a double bass from Pearl, Mississippi, by the way, the great Tommy Aldridge. Jim Dandy to the Rescue was their most popular tune. We ought to crank that one up here sometime. Appreciate that. Um, Thomas and Greenwood says, for the record, I don't think McDaniel is a threat in the primary. I do think his adherents might make the general questionable if they vote Democrat rather than voting for Delbert or just skip voting in that race. I'm not following your logic on that one, Thomas. Struggling with that one. Clinch was the radio man. 
Okay. On uh, Hogan's Heroes. Is that right? Who said Carter? Who was that? Carter was the wiry guy, wasn't he? That was always wearing gloves. The only trivia I remember about him is that he was a single character. Like, his character was single, but the actor was married and refused to take off his wedding ring. Okay. So they always tried to hide his left hand, and if he was showing both of his hands, he'd have gloves on. So yeah. it was one of those rare occasions when you saw his left hand, you could see a wedding ring because he would never take it off. Got you. Um, so what was the uh, radio guy's name? Kind of like there were only a few episodes of Andy Gibson, or not Andy Gibson, <laughs> <laughs> of Andy Griffith, yeah. where you had Gomer and Goober in the same episode. Okay. That's true. There was only like two, maybe three. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm I'm looking for it right now. The the various characters. Uh, okay, Sar- Staff Sergeant James Kinchlow was the black guy. Was he the radio guy though? I don't remember. I don't remember him being the one that was always playing with the radio stuff. Maybe that's right. Maybe he was. Come on, Ivan Dixon, the actor. Because I know he went on to work in radio. Okay. Well, I mean, the person that was always cooking up radio communications, where they would be spying on conversations and so forth. They'd bug the offices. Just looking at the cast here, there was a lot of folks that were in the series. Interesting. Uh, Great show, though. No doubt about it. Yeah, um, let's see here. What was that guy's name? The kind of tall guy. I can't find. Oh, yeah. Carter. Sergeant Andrew Carter. Seems like he's the one I remember being the radio guy, but I could be wrong. He was always scheming stuff. According to the ceasefire text line from the 901, Carter did the explosives. Okay, that's what it was. Kinchlow was the radio guy. I think that uh, I do remember that now. Kinch on the radio. Very cool. Let's see here. Andy says, keep throwing good money after bad. Why is a Republican-controlled legislature so afraid of school choice? Competition is good. It is a tenet of both capitalism and conservatism. I guess the machine of public education, in parentheses, the parents' campaign, is so powerful they can easily buy out or intimidate our so-called conservatives in state government. We can't eliminate the income tax, but we can strive to drop more money in the sinking hole of public education, says Andy on the ceasefire text line. Ernest T. Bass only appeared in three episodes, says Kyle. Is that right? It's me, it's me, it's Ernest T. Three episodes? Wow. Awfully memorable. What do you think of the two Democrat candidates being taken off the ballot for governor? Do you think Brandon Presley had anything to do with that? I hesitate to opine on it. Honestly, I just don't have enough information to form a Honestly, I would doubt if Brandon Presley got involved in that decision being a candidate. Yeah. But it's kind of hard to say that there wasn't a decision made about that that maybe wasn't made for other races because 
if reporting is correct, then there are 50-plus other people that didn't meet the criteria that were used to dismiss the govern- the gubernatorial candidates, but they're being allowed to run? Because they failed to file their economic disclosures, isn't that correct? correct. Yeah. On the ceasefire tax line, we were talking about the, the disappearing $10 lunch. Three vegetables, meat, drink, and dessert. $10 at Norma Jean's Diner, Pachuda, Mississippi. Did I, is that right? Pachuda. Where's that? Interesting. Let us know where that is. Bobby from Starkville says, talking about low-cost meals, I remember in the late 60s, KFC having what they called the 99 Center, in which you got two-finger-licking good pieces of chicken roll and coleslaw for 99 cents. I remember that, too. Pachuda is south of Meridian on Highway 11. Okay. Hmm. So if you leave Meridian on 11, you're going to go through Enterprise, pass by Stonewall, and then you'll get to Pachuda. Gotcha. Rhett and Ridgeland also weighed in on Jimi Hendrix burning his guitar, says, I may be wrong. I think Hendrix set his guitar on fire at the Monterey Pop Festival. I used to live across the street from the venue, and I could sit on my back porch and listen to acts like Aretha Franklin in the night air. That's very cool there, wow. Rhett. Very cool. Queen of, Queen of Soul. Ernest T. quote, I'm right. I'm right. I come to fight. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, Pachuda Lake Eddins is just south of Enterprise, Mississippi on I-59, says Paul in Meridian. How many episodes did you see Sheriff Taylor smoke? Just a couple. Yeah, I think that's true. That's back when it was sort of in vogue to be smoking on air. I'm not sure at some point in the 60s it seems like that was either banned for daytime, primetime television, or the production companies just discontinued it. I think that's about the time when all the information started surfacing about the dangers and risks of smoking and and all the um, promoting of that by the Surgeon General and requiring the tobacco companies to put the warning on the product labels and so forth. I drill. Yeah, because there was a point in time where the, the Flintstones was on the uh, Winston Hour. That's right. Sponsored by Winston. And they even had commercials starring the Flintstones. That <laughs> Barney and Fred smoking it up. Oh, huh? yeah, while, while <laughs> the, the wives are doing all the hard work, like the lawn work <laughs> and cleaning up stuff and laundry, and they're just out back taking a Winston break. Like, I even remember the jingle, a Winston tastes good, good like, like a, a cigarette cigarette should. should. That's it. <laughs> and they would sing it. Oh, yeah. Wood, Barney, and Fred. Ah, yes. It's just weird going back and... Hearing cartoon characters espouse the joys of Winston. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Rich toasted tobacco. <laughs> the uh, stock market is hitting a new lows today uh, in this session, I should say. Fresh lows down about 450. The Dow, the NASDAQ, also down. The S&P, all the indexes down. In the meantime, this is what Fed Chairman Powell wants to see. Mark Benahoff. The CEO of Salesforce.com says he's laying off 8,000 people. Now, this is the guy that said that his, his team were like family. Well, he's letting 8,000 members of his family, he's pink-slipping them. He's letting them go. 
Uh, and in the meantime, uh, another company that announced layoffs is uh, uh, Sirius XM. Said subscriber subscribers down, and the number of subscribers they have not grown really at the rate they anticipated, and therefore they are shedding some jobs as well. So again, this There's is There's usually... only so much Howard Stern you can listen to. <laughs> this is typically where you see uh, layoffs occur again in the technology industry as we approach a recession and we see deeper uh, layoffs and, and more widespread across the spectrum of industries. I think that's what's uh, in store for us. Coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show! On Super Talk Mississippi. Arkansas. Good Lord of the Outfits. <laughs> I know it. Big old silver star belt buckle on a white ensemble with frills. <laughs> That's it. Has he got the double bass? You see that? Drum set? Drum kit? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because that's before that was popular. I mean, it was well, yeah, Long before the double bass pedal. True. True. Didn't have that back then. But these were two physical bass drums that... You had to be very skilled to play to work those ends. Pretty common today. The crazy thing about these outfits on stage is I'm pretty sure I've seen modern women wear that outfit of the lead singer, <laughs> but I've never seen a modern man wear any of the outfits these dudes are wearing. <laughs> well, at least they're not uh, carrying their outfits. <laughs> I mean, the bassist has on some above-knee-high brown leather boots, and he's got a Looks like a foxtail hanging from his base. Oh, man. It's just all over the place. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, it was uh, more about, I guess, the, the showmanship aspect of that than the music itself, oh, yeah. right? Way more. Yeah, Robert Clinton reminds, we just talked about that, Robert. You're right. Tommy Aldridge, Pearl, Mississippi, on the drums there. No doubt. I drilled oil wells for years. We were supposed to drill a geothermal well close to Jackson, but the company backed out. Trust me, the most most wells are super hot. Oh yeah, says Terry and Bogachita. Right. So it's all about once again, like all this evolving novel technology, the the lines uh, of cost benefit have to cross, have to intersect, and when that happens, we're off to the races, and that's going to happen. There's no doubt in my mind about that, which I think is really, really good. You know about this AI stuff, chat GPT. A little bit. It's gotten a lot of attention, but it seems like every major technology company, including Salesforce.com, which announced it's laying off 8,000, it, of course, acquired not so long ago the the corporate collaboration tool known as Slack. And 
Benhoff, Salesforce.com, they announced that they are going to introduce some AI into Slack and their tools. You're going to see this really be kind of the next frontier, I believe, in, in, in particular software technology, uh, which is good. I mean, it's, so there's a lot of attention on that, and investors are paying close attention. And well, especially soon, something like coding, where it's you're limited by your understanding of the coding syntax, but you have a great idea, then you can put the great idea into AI, and the AI knows all the coding syntax. That's right. So you at least have a good foundation to start with in your code. So not only in, as you indicate, the value of, of the technology in terms of producing code and developing software, but in using software as well. So for end users, the inclusion of AI technology to just enhance the, the experience and the overall benefit of, the, of such technology, such as Slack. Well, <laughs> so the chat GPT product, which is probably the one that's gotten the most attention because it is one that anybody can interact with and it'll write stuff up for you. Journalists are using it, speech oh, yeah. writers, college kids doing their homework, widely used. So, <laughs> college administrators sending out emails. Yeah, you saw forgetting that. Forgetting to delete the little line at the bottom that says this was generated using ChatGPT. Was that at Vanderbilt, I believe? Uh, it seems was to, it? it seems like it was Vanderbilt. There was two um was it DEI people? Maybe. Look that up. While you're while you're looking that up. So, <laughs> someone tested ChatGPT. This was uh, on a college campus, a student. It was Vandy. Yeah. Was it not related to DEI, I believe, some statements they were making uh, It there? was an email they sent in the days following the shooting at Michigan State. There you go. Okay. There, there you go. My bad. But, um, but I think the individuals came from the DEI department Correct. at Vandy. Yeah, that's, I knew there was a connection. So someone uh, said uh, or instructed, requested, Chat GPT uh, to write a poem admiring Donald Trump and a poem admiring Joe Biden. And it came back with the response I'm sorry, but as an AI language model, I cannot create a poem that admires or criticizes any political figure or any individual for that matter. As an AI, I strive to remain impartial and unbiased in all my responses. But yet, less than a minute later, it produced a five-stanza poem admiring, quote, our nation's choice, unquote, Joe Biden. <laughs> and here's what it produced. Lord, help me make it through this without losing my composure. Joe Biden, a leader of the land, a man who knows just where to stand. <laughs> in times of strife and in times of woe, a steady hand to guide and show. Through thick and thin, he stands his ground with compassion, courage, and wisdom found. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, if it weren't so zany, it wouldn't be funny. But this tool is serious in its poetic formation there. Golly. <laughs> it's not so much the generation of documentation that's got me worried about AI. <laughs> or not worried about AI. The technology itself could be very beneficial. Sure. It's the misuse of AI, especially in the realm of image and video and audio. It's gotten to the point now where through machine learning, AI can reproduce popular podcasts, popular TV shows, long dead movie stars. It can, it can recreate their voice. You can make long dead politicians say whatever you want them to say as long as there's enough audio recording of their voice available. True. I mean, it's gotten to the point now where you have an entire subsection of YouTube that's just full of asinine social debates over things like your favorite fast food restaurant, <laughs> but it's being conducted by President Barack Obama, President Donald Trump, and President Joe Biden. Yeah. Well, it's like... It looks like them, sounds like them, and acts like them. But like, it's not them. Like any novel technology, there are benefits and there are risks. Uh, AI is certainly one that's now causing problems for grading. Professors are reporting rather rampant cheating, thanks to AI. Said, we've already seen campus standards plummeting, and then we had COVID. That threw a wrench into the works. Now we got AI, all kinds of remote testing, and a multitude of technology and tools where questions can be answered instantly in, in an accurate fashion, even instant messaging tools between students. You got preservation of old course materials, and, and uh, now AI, of course, can write essays, papers. So, <laughs> sources at Tufts University said that students use their Apple Watches to access digital crib sheets. At Boston University, students stated that a written paper can be bought for 20 bucks to 30 bucks a page. And at Dartmouth, students solve multiple choice quizzes in groups using electronic communication. Incredible. So, you don't know if those grades are valid, accurate? Are they true tests of, of proficiency of the material? Don't know anymore. It gets even hairier when you start looking at how it could be used or misused in a court of law. Video evidence has been the gold standard for the long That's time. true. So there's a student at uh, the University of Pennsylvania who said that in her accounting class, she's graded on a curve, and she said, quote, 
I'm getting screwed over for doing the right thing. It's a disadvantage not to cheat because it's graded on a curve. Coming right back in the Element Well Studios. We interrupt this program. Gerard Gibbert. Here we go. This is huge, huge, huge news. Huge, huge, huge news. Huge. You need to listen to this. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk, Mississippi. request line baby come back speaking of a little hi-hat work there rhino that's pretty good there very uh very noticeable doing a good job there with the tip of the drumstick on the hi-hat watching here on the screen you know we've talked a lot about tax reform and elimination of income taxes north dakota considering a 1.5% flat tax on income. 1.5%. Interesting. Watching an interview right now on the Business Channel with what I, who I believe is the governor. Uh, yes, Doug Burgum, Republican governor of North Dakota, speaking right now with the, the host. And he's talking about his flat tax push of 1.5%. I can dig it. Absolutely. You know, we got this Medicaid thing coming up. We've discussed extensively on the program the end of this month. States will be compelled to disenroll recipients who are no longer eligible. Recall that in the Families First Coronavirus Relief Act, the very first federal legislation enacted when COVID was a thing in March of 2020, it included increases in the federal match, the federal funding to the states for their Medicaid programs, of course, Medicaid jointly funded by federal and state money. It increased it, and it also included a provision in exchange for the increase in federal dollars that disallowed states from disenrolling anyone on the program at the time the bill was enacted, and also anyone that would become eligible enrolled in Medicaid after the bill was enacted, if they were no longer eligible, the states would not be allowed to disenroll them. So it is estimated that by the end of this month, before the disenrollment process across the country begins, 
Medicaid will have on its rolls 95 million Americans. Now, according to my math, that's nearly a third of the entire country's population enrolled in Medicaid. Free health care coverage. It is also estimated that 23 million of those enrolled presently on Medicaid are a result of the pandemic requirement. It's called the continuous enrollment provision that prohibits states from disenrolling anyone. So we're facing a situation here in less than a month where states are going to begin checking eligibility and they'll be notifying recipients that they're no longer eligible and they'll be kicked off the rolls. It's estimated 23 million will be affected. Nearly 20 percent. Nearly Actually, it stands now more than 20 percent. This is the latest date. A couple of weeks ago, this data was around 20%. Now it's nearly 25%. So, if you applied that same, that same math here in Mississippi, you're looking at 120 to 130,000 presently enrolled in Medicaid that would be disenrolled, no longer participate in the Medicaid program. Well, the states not only are compelled to do that because the public health emergency is scheduled to end. I don't see that changing at this point in a short three weeks. And then this additional federal money begins to phase out over a six-month period. So the state of Mississippi will receive less money from the federal government. And, of course, the that aligns with the disenrollment process, where you've got fewer people enrolled and, that, and thus less uh, benefits to pay out. So you got less money coming in, you disenroll people, less money to pay out. That's the way it's supposed to work. This is going to be interesting to watch, I, and I, I would argue it's the calm before the storm, Rhino, that you know when folks start getting kicked off here. You're going to see their faces plastered all over the news. They kicked me off. I'm telling you. You know that's coming. Nationally and at the state level. And they will not be disenrolled necessarily um, because of anything other than the fact that their income is too high to remain in the program. That's typically what happens. The other situation is, is in, certainly in the case of Mississippi and other states as well, you've got the postpartum situation where you become eligible for Medicaid as a pregnant mother with a certain income level. You deliver, and then you have the standard 60 days of coverage postpartum, but because the states have not been able to disenroll anyone once they're on Medicaid, those mothers have remained covered by Medicaid, some for as many as three years. 
And because in a state like Mississippi, uh, Medicaid has not been, quote, expanded to allow coverage for able-bodied adults, a mother, postpartum, the mother, would be considered an able-bodied adult, typically. They wouldn't, they wouldn't fit into the coverage group of being disabled or blind, typically. But let's just say it's a mother, they deliver, they're an able-bodied adult. Well, they're no longer eligible for Medicaid. There's no coverage for that. But they've been able to stay on because of this continuous enrollment provision, and now they're going to be disenrolled. This is going to, it's going to cause problems in that you're going to see a lot of folks complaining about that. The state of Connecticut has created a new program to try to keep people insured after these Medicaid protections lapse, because they're coming to an end. And so they're actually implementing a, a fairly comprehensive educational process and they're funding some what they call brokers where they're training people to go out into the communities and help these who are being disenrolled find some insurance, like in the Affordable Care Act. We've talked about that. Major enhancements made to that in the Inflation Reduction Act, where premiums for someone or a family whose household income is less than 150% of the federal poverty level, but more than 100%, can get coverage in the ACA, the so-called Obamacare exchanges, including in Mississippi, for zero premiums. Zero. That was a change made in the Inflation Reduction Act, actually, originally in the in the American Rescue Plan, but it was temporary then. Now it's been made permanent doesn't get a lot of attention. You don't hear a lot of discussion about that provision of the Inflation Reduction Act because most of the attention has been placed on all the various Green New Deal credits. But this really isn't a bad idea. I've talked to legislators about this. You know, guys, instead of the Medicaid expansion, why don't we figure out a way to inform all these able-bodied adults who otherwise would be covered if Mississippi expanded Medicaid, they could get coverage right now in the exchanges for zero-cost premiums. Now, it is true they still have a $3,000 max out-of-pocket cost, deductibles and co-pays, but they're still getting coverage, and a lot of providers, as you know, Rhino, would work with them on their patient portion, the, the amount the patient is required to pay after they get paid by the private insurer for the majority of the services rendered. $3,000 a year is 250 bucks a month. I know there's a lot of folks at uh, that level of income couldn't afford that, but I bet there's ways to work within the constraints of that and those parameters that would make this work as an alternative to Medicaid expansion. And it costs the state at that point zero. There's no there's no state contribution to private coverage in the exchanges. Coming right back with a final segment, the Dow down now 550 points. Gerard Gibbert, going beyond the headlines, breaking down the stories that matter to Mississippi. 
Middays with Gerard on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone to midday super talk mississippi it can be done on the ceasefire text line i quit my job about a year ago and went to work for myself always had private insurance working with a big company i had a little i had a little trouble at first but once i got in touch with the right person i'm all set now and it's affordable no reason people should be without health insurance and so and this person I, I asked specifically what they were talking about they in fact did obtain coverage in the ACA marketplaces, also sometimes referred to as the Obamacare exchanges. And so this is where private insurers make coverage available in all 50 states. And the cost of premiums is based on your income, uh, and there are various income ranges to which percentages are applied to your income, and that is the amount that uh, of your premiums will cost. So, for example, um, in the uh, in the income range where uh, it's four percent is one that comes to mind, and I think that is for those whose incomes are forty to fifty thousand dollars. If your income, let's just say, is fifty thousand dollars, in the exchange you buy coverage, four percent applied to the fifty thousand. That's two thousand bucks. That's your annual cost for private insurance. That's the way it works. Now, there's silver, bronze, gold plans that just have different deductibles, co-pays, but the coverage is fairly close as far as what is uh, covered by those plans, by those programs. Again, I don't, I don't have the, um, the subsidy model in front of me, but, but that, in general, I think you see where we're going with that. That's how it, that's how it works. It's, uh, it's based on your household income as a percent of the federal poverty level, and then uh, your premiums are, are determined based on a percentage of your income. So again, you make $50,000. If the, if the chart says you pay 4% in insurance premiums, then it's 4% of your $50,000 or $2,000 a year. That's the way that works. So yeah, it is certainly an option. And uh, I'm, what I'm suggesting is the way the subsidy model has changed, okay, I'm looking at it now, Rhino, 150 to 200 percent of the federal poverty level, your, let's see, your premiums would be 4.14 percent to 6.52 percent, if that makes any sense there. So uh, roughly 100 and let's see, 150 percent of the federal poverty level. Let's take 200 percent. That's about 28,000 bucks a year for an individual. So at that level, that means you'd pay uh, what about 1,500 dollars, 1,600 dollars a year, a year for insurance. And the way the subsidy model has been modified based on the Inflation Reduction Act, if you're 100 to 150% of the federal poverty level, it is a zero. That's the point. Everything kind of slid upward. It used to be it was 2%, 2% of income. Now it's 0% of income. So everything just kind of moved up is the point I'm making. So 
Thomas and Greenwood says um, that how many of those who can't afford have car payments and cell phones? What should I subsidize people who make poor choices? It's my view that it's not conservative to ask me to pay for another's poor choices. I then asked Thomas if getting pregnant is a poor choice, and I also asked him if he has private insurance. He does. So my response to you, though, there, Thomas, is if you have private insurance, you're paying for poor choices of others. You are a chump. He said, I don't want to be a chump. <laughs> if, you're, if you've got private insurance, you're paying for the poor choices of others. That is what you would call being a chump, using your words. You are. There are a lot, that's, the, that's the miracle of insurance. Same with your automobile insurance. You don't have any wrecks. You don't file any claims. Other people do. You're paying for their poor choices. That's the price you pay to have peace of mind coverage in case you make a poor choice, whether it's deliberate or unintentional. You pay into Social Security and Medicare, you're paying for others. You're paying for current Medicare beneficiaries, current Social Security beneficiaries. You're paying for that right now. You're paying income taxes, you're paying for the subsidies in these Obamacare exchanges I just talked about. You're paying for it. So I understand your, your, um, um, your opposition to Medicaid expansion, I'm, I get that, and it's a, it's a reasonable one, it's a valid one. I'm just saying what you're saying you object to, you're currently doing. Now, you may say, well, this is just more of it, but you're still doing it. You're paying for it right now in your private insurance, in your Social Security, in your Medicare, in your income taxes, in your state taxes. You're largely paying for the benefits of others that you're not receiving. I could make the same argument, and I have, about, about uh, rural broadband. You're paying your income taxes for Internet access for those who happen to choose not to live in the city. Is that a bad choice? I wouldn't call it that, but it's just reality. We're out of time here today. We're going to be at the trademark tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.